Please join me in your Bibles in the book of Jonah for today's reading of the Word of God. We'll be reading Jonah chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us and we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come. Let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid, and they said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up. And hurl me into the sea, that the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is God's word. As you may be seated this morning, as we come before God's Word, and as we do, let's pray together. Our God and our Father, thank You for Your Word, and thank You for the revelation of Your mercy and Your goodness and Your kindness that it is and always is. And Father, we ask this morning that as we come to Your Word, You would help us to have confidence that it is Your Word and that You would help us to be able to understand Your Word. Holy Spirit, be with us now and illuminate to our minds and especially our hearts the meaning and the importance and the significance for our lives of this living, active Word of God. Father, use it to transform us by the renewing of our minds and to conform us into the image of Christ. We pray that the words of my mouth and that the meditations of our hearts will be pleasing in Your sight as we come to Your Word. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, here we are finally, long promised, coming to the book of Jonah. And many of us, I suspect, are well familiar with the story of Jonah, which is one of the most often told stories in all of God's Word. Whether in Sunday school classes, or children's study Bibles, or sermons or quotations or history channel specials or references from from secular psychology or veggie tales episodes this particular story is one of the most well-known and often told stories in all of the bible 
almost everyone's heard it in one form or the other and has at least some kind of passing familiarity with it. Now, how well we've understood it is another matter. How well we've understood God's intended message in this story of Jonah is another matter altogether. It's been said uh, more often than once that, that very often the reading and the telling of the story of Jonah doesn't get very far past the second chapter of the four chapters that God has revealed in this book. And so we know that when Jonah refused to obey God, he got himself swallowed up by a giant fish and then coughed back up onto the beach. And from there, uh, the, va- the, basic, the basic moral of the story that we derive from it varies, and it varies depending on the various lenses that people are reading it through. It's either a, a simple story about how important it is to do what God says or else He's going to get you, or it's a... It's an example of Jungian psychoanalysis. Carl Jung loved this story and it became a symbolic picture to him of of psychological death and rebirth. Or it's a, a metaphor of a very important stage in the hero's journey in Joseph Campbell's scheme of comparative mythology. Everybody likes to co opt this story for some purpose or another. So, Moralistic applications or metaphorical interpretations or mythological comparisons are are by far and away the most common ways that people read and understand and try to deal with the book of Jonah. But we're going to see today and in the coming weeks as we work through this book together that God has a lot more to teach us here than any of that. And there's some truth to some of that especially when it comes to understanding some of the important moral life lessons that God has for us in the story of Jonah. But at the end of the day, understand this, and this is true of all of God's Word, it's not just simply merely given to us by God to point us into ourselves, to help us discover ourselves more fully, or to give us some kind of answers to the questions about how we can avoid catastrophe in our lives and find the keys to to successful living in our lives. Ultimately, the story of Jonah is intended to point us outside of ourselves, away from ourselves, and to the one who truly exemplifies the main message of the book. And the main message of the book is the merciful and patient and kind redemption and deliverance of the one true God. It's given, and we're going to see this all together, it's given to point us ultimately to Jesus and to the gospel of His great salvation for lost sinners. Jesus references the book of Jonah several times, both in Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel, in order to show that Jonah was, in Jesus' words, a God-given sign pointing to him, to Jesus. And that Jesus is the one who is eternally greater than Jonah, who has come to bring eternal salvation and life into this dark world and during this evil generation that we're all living in. And so what we have to remember, just from the outset, before we even dip a toe into chapter 1, what we have to remember as we read this book, just like we do when we read any and every other book and passage and verse of Old Testament Scripture, we have to remember how Jesus Himself taught His disciples to read the Old Testament. Remember from Luke chapter 24? when he walked with a couple of them down the road to Emmaus after his resurrection and opened their minds and opened their hearts, Luke tells us, to see and to understand and to believe and to revel and marvel in the fact that all of the Old Testament Scriptures were ultimately all about him, about Jesus. Moses was speaking of Jesus. The Psalms, he says, were speaking of Jesus. The prophets were speaking of Jesus. 
all of God's revelation in the Old Testament, whether it was in the writings of the Scriptures themselves or in the events of history that the Scriptures reveal, all of it was orchestrated and revealed and given by God to foreshadow and anticipate and point to Jesus who would come to be better, as the book of Hebrews says, than everything that the Old Testament spoke of. So Jesus would be the second and the better Adam. Jesus would be the better Exodus, the better Deliverer, the better Moses, the better Prophet, the one better, greater than Jonah, which is what Jesus says in Luke 11, the better priest, the better sacrifice, the better temple, the better King, the better Isaac, the better Jacob, the better and truest and ultimate offspring of Abraham, as we've been seeing together over the past several weeks. When we allow Jesus and the New Testament to teach us how to read the Old Testament, then, and only then, can we come to understand that all of the Old Testament is always all about Jesus and the fulfillment of His gospel of salvation by grace through faith. So that's how we're going to study this book together. That's how we have to, because Jesus teaches us to do that. And as we do that, there are going to be all kinds of really important life lessons for us to learn about what it looks like, or actually in Jonah's case, what it, what it doesn't look like to trust God and to seek God's will and to walk by faith and to live for God's kingdom. But, but even more importantly than giving us a template to follow, The book of Jonah is giving us a mirror to look into, to see how much Jonah, the prophet's own sin and pride and unfaithfulness is reflected in our own hearts and our own lives, and how desperately and absolutely we need the same unfathomable grace that God gave, not only to Jonah, but the people of Nineveh. And how much we need every single day the same relentless, sanctifying mercy with which God pursued Jonah in order to purify him and accomplish his purposes through him. Now this morning we're not going to get very far because we have to learn some of the important background and the historical backdrop of this book so that we can really understand who Jonah was We can understand what was going on in the world when these things took place. So we're going to take in the first three verses together, which really spell out what the book is all about. And it should go without saying, but I'll say it nonetheless, that this book is not just another example of ancient mythology. It's not just some metaphor. It's not just some fictional story that was written down by some ancient civilization or some ancient person in order to illustrate some kind of undergirding principles about the world or human nature. The story of Jonah is represented to us in the living active Word of God as historical narrative, historical fact, and that's what it is. These things really happened. And the only reason to doubt that is if we doubt that the Scriptures really are God's Word, and if we doubt that God could actually ordain and accomplish the things that happen in this book. The only people who think that this is a myth, or just some kind of legend, or some kind of fictional metaphor, are unbelievers who kind of say, yeah, right, there's no way this dude really gets swallowed up by a giant fish and survives. That can't happen. So it must be a myth, see? It's sinful unbelief that concludes that and concludes that because it would be silly to think that something like this could actually happen, it must be fiction. But see, it's that same kind of unbelief that also concludes that all of the other stories in God's scriptures of His supernatural and remarkable providence among His people, they must also be myths, right? including many people think the creation narrative, including many think the exodus narrative, including many think the virgin birth and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. A lot of people doubt those things simply because they think it's not possible in this empirical world that we live in, and they doubt that God can do it. 
if our unbelief and doubt drive us to deny the historicity of God's divine works in this world, then we are denying the reality of the gospel of His grace by which we are saved because that grace only comes by the actual events in history that Jesus endured and accomplished in time and in history. So Jonah, goes without saying, was a real flesh and blood human being and he lived in actual history and he experienced in reality the very things that the God-breathed Word reveals here in these chapters. And at the same time, these divinely ordained and orchestrated historical events, they are divinely ordained signs that point ahead to something greater, to the coming of Jesus the Messiah and to the salvation that He brings to this world. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except for the sign of Jonah. Jesus says, Matthew 16, And what did God sovereignly ordain for the life and story of Jonah to be a sign of? To signify... Jesus answers, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, in the tomb after His crucifixion. Jesus says the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, but behold, something greater than Jonah is here. If you think it was remarkable that the godless, pagan, immoral, idolatrous people of Nineveh repented when Jonah preached, wait till you see what's going to happen to the world, Jesus says, when I come out of the tomb after three days. So Jonah's story is a story that's rooted in actual time and history. It's anchored to the eternal plans and the redeeming purposes of the one true and almighty God. And because that's true, and in order to really understand the historical story, we got to understand something about the, the, the history itself. And thankfully, God supplies us with an important piece of information in the book of 2 Kings that helps us to locate the prophet Jonah in the history of the Old Testament. So if you want, you don't have to, but if you want, you can turn back to 2 Kings if you prefer to just listen, that's okay too. But if you want, turn back to 2 Kings chapter 14 very quickly today. 2 Kings chapter 14, look at verses 23 through 29. They record this. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, southern kingdom, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, the northern kingdom, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. And he, Jeroboam II, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Labo Hamath, as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which He spoke by His servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-hefer. For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel was very bitter. There was none left, bond or free. There was none to help Israel, but the Lord had not said that He would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, so He saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam and all that he did in his might, how he fought, how he restored Damascus and Hamath to Judah in Israel, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? And then Jeroboam slept with his fathers, the kings of Israel, and Zechariah, his son, reigned in his place. Okay, so 2 Kings chapter 14 reveals to us that this same prophet Jonah, the son of Amittai, by the way, his dad's name, 
Amitai is derived from the Hebrew word for faithfulness, which I think is fairly ironic, don't you? Given how the story of Jonah unfolds, he's the son of faithfulness. Does he, does he seem like the son of faithfulness to you? Right. Well, 2 Kings 14 tells us that Jonah was from a little place in the territory of Zebulun called Gath-Hefer, which is up in the northern kingdom of Israel. And we're told that Jonah lived around and probably just before, if not during, the reign of Amaziah, son of Joash, who was the king of the southern kingdom of Judah, and during the beginning of the reign of Jeroboam II in Israel, up in the northern kingdom. And that puts Jonah in the heart of the 8th century B.C., which gives us a really great target to aim at in terms of understanding what's going on in the world around that time. And the key statement there in 2 Kings 14, aside from the fact that God had spoken to Israel through Jonah around that time, the key statement is there in verse 24, that the reign of King Jeroboam II of the northern kingdom of Israel was not good. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. So, this is the story of the northern kingdom, by the way, if you know your Old Testament history. Like all the other northern kings, Jeroboam II was not a godly man, not a faithful king. He perpetuated the sins of prior kings and earlier generations and continued to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He reigned for 41 years in Israel, and that's how his reign is characterized, by the word evil. And yet, even so, 2 Kings 14 also says that Jeroboam II was successful, verse 25, in restoring the border of Israel from Labo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arava. And the scriptures tell us how the king was able to achieve this success in spite of his sin. It was according to the word of the Lord. God prophesied through Jonah that Jeroboam, in spite of his sin, would achieve great success in his reign in Israel. It's pretty easy, isn't it? During our Bible reading times, especially if we're on one of these schedules that has us kind of racing through all of God's Word and in order, to, in order to devour it all within a matter of weeks or months, it can be pretty easy to kind of blow past some pretty important details that reveal God's character to us in some really significant ways, like, like here in 2 Kings 14, where it clearly says that for the 41 years of his ministry, Jeroboam did evil in God's sight, refused to obey the Lord, refused to do anything about all the idolatry and sinfulness that had infected the land for generations, but still he was able to restore the borders of the country because God prophesied it, because God saw that Israel was suffering and God cared because he's gracious, because he's merciful, because he's a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. There had been all these battles, see, in the, in the past before Jeroboam. And the result had been that their territory had shrunk, right? Enemy armies had come and, and taken some of their territory from them. And that made them more and more vulnerable. But Jeroboam was able to restore the borders to the full extent of what God had given them. And the divinely revealed reason why and how is that God had promised it and prophesied it through Jonah the prophet because God was kind. God had spoken and God was kind anyway in spite of the fact that the territory had been lost and that the people were sin, sinful and that they were indulging in the sin of previous generations and that they refused to repent and do anything about it. God was kind. God was merciful anyway. Why? Well, hopefully what we've all seen together from the scriptures over the past several weeks that we've been looking at, hopefully, hopefully that answers the question why. why. Why is God so kind in spite of people's sin? It's because as we learned from Isaiah 50, God's goodness and faithfulness don't depend on us. 
or anything that we do or don't do. It's just who He is in His eternal, unchanging nature as God. And it's what He does because in His nature He purposes to be kind and loving and merciful to sinners. He's the God who Jesus says in Matthew 6 cares for the birds of the air and the little flowers that grow in the field and every single blade of grass even though it sprouts up in the morning and it's, it's gone by afternoon. How much more does He care for us who He's made in His image just because He is who He is in spite of who and what we are? He's the God who in Genesis gave a child of promise and and blessing to Abraham and to Sarah in spite of their old age, in spite of her barrenness, in spite of their unbelieving, doubting laughter and mocking him for making the promise. He's the God who loved Jacob instead of Esau, despite Esau being the firstborn and Jacob being a a treacherous, self-serving, sneaky sinner. He's the God who wrestled Jacob and defeated him, but only in order to bless him. Only in order to cause him to prevail through his own defeat and reliance upon the strength and the promises of God. He's the God that through Jacob's offspring would bless the whole world through the true seed of Jesus Christ who would come and be the latter from Jacob's vision earlier in Genesis upon which all of the blessings of God come down from heaven to undeserving sinners in this dark world and in this rebellious generation. This is the God who we're talking about here, right? This is the God who who reveals Himself through and through all over Scripture. The gloriously Holy One who's righteous, who's just, who judges sin, and the One who is every bit as gloriously merciful and gracious and undeservingly kind and unfailingly faithful as He is holy and righteous and just. This is the God who descended from a cloud in Mount Sinai with unimaginable glory and met Moses there and said of Himself, here's who I am. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, who at the same time will no no means clear the guilty, who will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. He's holy, He's just, and He's merciful, and He's kind, and there is no conflict between those attributes in His nature. And of course, all of that was brought together and revealed and expressed most gloriously on that cross where Jesus died so that the wrath of God would be satisfied and all of the mercy of God would be poured out on undeserving sinners like all of us so that we could be reconciled to Him. This is who we're talking about. This unchanging God of holy, divine justice and mercy. He is the God who mercifully, according to His living and active word through Jonah, promised and acted to restore the borders of Israel in spite of their sin. And in spite of their king perpetuating their sin. Because 2 Kings 14.26 says, the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was bitter. No one was left, bond or free, to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that He would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, and so He saved them. I'm going to do what I said I would do. I'm going to be faithful even if they are not faithful. That's who our God is. In spite of their sin, He remained compassionate to their plight and faithful and merciful and loving because He keeps steadfast love for thousands. He forgives iniquity and transgression and sin because that's who He is and He's the same yesterday and today and forever. So this is the God, right? This is the the God who, who mercifully provided for Israel in the 8th century in spite of their sin, in spite of their king. God through His Word, through the prophet Jonah, brought 
merciful, gracious, compassionate, kindness, and blessing into the lives of his undeserving people. Okay, so turn now, turn back to Jonah chapter 1, and let's look at the opening verses of this prophecy with this understanding of God anchored in our minds. This same God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity, being kind when people don't deserve it, now, having poured out kindness and mercy and gracious love on undeserving Israel, right, through the promises that He spoke through Jonah, and having sovereignly kept those promises, even through the agency of a sinful king like Jeroboam, this same God now says to this same prophet Jonah, who watched God do this for Israel, I want you to go to Nineveh. (laughs) And I want you to preach this same kind of mercy and compassion and repentance to those people there. So verse 2 of chapter 1, Arise, God says, go to Nineveh, that great city, call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now let's talk about this city Nineveh for a minute. In Jonah's day in the 8th century BC, Nineveh was an old city, an ancient city even in Jonah's day. And it had been already for hundreds of years established in the the pagan, Assyrian, unbelieving, idolatrous, godless, immoral empire, it had been established as the city of kings. It was a royal city. It was a powerful place. It was an influential place. It was a place of great wealth and worldly pride and esteem in the Assyrian empire. Nineveh is mentioned 18 times in the Old Testament, half of them, nine of them, here in the book of Jonah. And God also speaks about Nineveh and speaks against it, speaks words of judgment in the Old Testament books of Nahum and Zephaniah where where that's what he's doing. He's proclaiming that because they're sinful, he's going to judge them. The whole, right, God will know by no means clear the guilty and God will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children, right? That part of his nature that's revealed in Exodus 34, God proclaims against Nineveh in in Nahum and Zephaniah, because the city of Nineveh and the empire of Assyria in general was, it was godless, it was immoral, it was unjust, it was a wicked place, it was a wicked society. They were known for it, they were notorious for it, world round, for their godlessness, for their, for their inhumanity, for their violence, for their cruelty. They were ruthless because their worldly ambitions knew no bounds. They were driven in sinful, fleshly rebellion against God to to expand their empire and to enrich themselves no matter what it cost anybody around them, morally or ethically or spiritually. Sound familiar? We have cities like that in our day, don't we? We have have states like that in our day in, in the state of our union. There are whole nations like this in the world, nations and societies that have always existed and exist still now and And sadly, the great nation of America is becoming one of them. More and more indifferent to right and wrong. More and more indifferent to the human cost of idolizing human pleasure. Just like our culture is more and more indifferent to the law of God and to His holiness, to His divine definition of what's right and what's wrong. And we're more and more indifferent to, to how the lust for immorality and ungodliness destroys things, decimates things, devastates the culture and, and lives of people all around us, destroys what God has made, destroys what God calls holy. This is how Nineveh was, and they, they epitomized it even more than we do in the 21st century now. Nineveh was far, far worse. One historical scholar of ancient society says this about Assyria and Nineveh says the the Assyrians were the Nazi stormtroopers of the ancient world. They were pitiless. They were power crazed. They showed no quarter in battle. They uprooted entire peoples in their fury for conquest. They extinguished the northern kingdom of Israel. They did after Jonah's day. So for Jonah, Nineveh, this historian says, 
was no ordinary city. It carried doom-laden, tragic memories. It stood as a symbol of evil incarnate. Literally for centuries, the name Nineveh was was an allegory and a well-known one worldwide for wickedness and evil. And so as another Old Testament scholar says, to go to Nineveh means for Jonah to go to hell on earth. That's where I want you to go, God said to Jonah. That's that's exactly what he's calling him to do, right? Arise, verse 2, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up against me. So you see what God, who is holy and just, and unspeakably mighty, and don't forget, unfathomably merciful, you see what he's calling Jonah to do here. Where he's calling Jonah to go. This is way worse, right? Than than calling somebody who grew up in Florida or Texas or Idaho to go to California. That's bad, but this is worse. (laughs) This is worse. Today, listen, there are Christians today who are publicly calling other Christians to actually abandon places like California. To leave the blue states and let them burn under the wrath of God like God called Lot to abandon Sodom and Gomorrah and let them burn. And I guess to some people that sounds radical and courageous and inspiring. It's just that it's not biblical. Especially now in the New Covenant era where God in His divine patience, 1 Peter 3, is waiting to send Christ to return in final judgment because He's patient and desiring all to come to repentance. Right? Jesus, who in fulfillment of all of the redemptive purposes of God, Jesus came into this dark world. Jesus came into deliberately this sin-cursed, rebellious world not to judge it, but to pour out salvation. He came as a suffering servant. He came devoted to to enduring the shame, to laying His own will aside, to laying His own life down in order to seek and save that which is lost. So, understand, the old covenant episode of Sodom and Gomorrah, where God says, I'm done with it, and calls Lot to leave it, isn't a normative example of how God wants His new covenant people to relate to this dark world. Jesus is the normative example. Not Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah. Jesus, who did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus, who emptied Himself of any concern for His divine glory and rights Jesus, who is the Word who became flesh and came into this world to redeem sinners and who now calls us to follow Him and do the same. He's the normative example for us to follow. Why? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. You know that verse, John 3.16. What's the next verse say? John 3.17. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him, and that and He is the normative pattern for us to follow, brothers and sisters. Not the call to abandon the world to judgment, the call to follow Jesus. Seek first the kingdom. Go be my witnesses to Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. You are my ambassadors. Be salt. Be light. Bear up your cross. Follow me. He doesn't call us to be anxious about all the cares and the concerns of this world like money and how to pay the bills, Matthew chapter 6, material provisions, safety, security. Let him worry about all of that stuff. If God clothes the flowers and the blades of grass, he's going to give us what we need as we seek the eternal imperishable kingdom of everlasting life and call lost sinners to repent. You can't do that unless you're in the darkness can't call people out of darkness and into light unless you're in the darkness. Can't shine the light in the darkness. Can't be the city on the hill unless you're in the darkness. 
can't do that by fleeing from the darkness. The light shines most brightly in the darkness. So the eternal sovereign God calls us to do all that and to be all that. Be salt, be light, count the cost, and call people into the everlasting light of the sun. That's what we are, that we're, we're ambassadors of Jesus. And this is what he's calling Jonah to do also, see? In a great, historic, prophetic anticipation of Jesus himself, the coming Messiah, who came to seek, to save that which is lost, not to flee, not to abandon that which is lost. Nineveh, <laughs> Nineveh in the Old Covenant era was not a red state, Right? Nineveh was as blue as blue can be. It was so blue that it was black. And God said to Jonah, get up and go there. Go to hell on earth. Go to the darkest corner. And maybe at this point in verse 2, Jonah doesn't even know why yet, right? Jonah may be assuming that he's going to go there and he's going to preach condemnation and judgment on him. You think he could even imagine that God would be as merciful to the people of Nineveh as he had been to the people of Israel under Jeroboam's reign in the 8th century there? But that was God's purpose. God says, go. Go because their evil ways have come up before me. If you were in Jonah's shoes, I think you and I would both assume that, that the reason to go is because God's going to use us to pronounce judgment on this evil people. Jonah probably wanted that. If you read chapter 4, Jonah definitely wanted that. And confirmation bias probably kicked in and thought, that's what, that's what God's going to have me to do. To be a conduit of divine judgment. But it turns out, that's not God's purpose. God was sending Jonah, not as a conduit of judgment, but a vehicle of mercy and redeeming grace to a massively undeserving people and place. And if Jonah knew that, that God wasn't sending him into the darkest corner of the world to pronounce and enact divine judgment, but instead to unleash saving, sanctifying, redeeming mercy and grace and a massive display of God's unfathomable love and faithfulness on a people who didn't deserve it at all. If Jonah knew that, and how marvelously God would, would glorify Himself in this unthinkable, unprecedented display of redeeming mercy and grace on the Assyrians. If Jonah knew that, then surely he wouldn't have hesitated, right, to heed God's call to go to the hell on earth that Nineveh was, right? And see mercy outpoured and glory displayed? Well, the thing is, Jonah didn't actually care why God was sending him to Nineveh. Jonah just simply didn't want to go. I don't care what you're doing, God. I don't care anything about those people, God. I'm not going anywhere near that place, God. Because very simply, Jonah, the prophet of God, wasn't as focused on the glory of God. Either in the judgment or the redemption of the Assyrians in Nineveh, he wasn't focused on the glory of God nearly so much as he was on his own priorities. And his own ambitions, his own feelings, his own prejudices against this people. His own comfort, his own safety in this world, in his own life. All of that mattered more to Jonah than the glory of God, than the command of God, than the call of God, than the purposes of God, than the mercy of God. And all of that gets put on display in the later chapters of this book when, by God's great providence, he ends up going to Nineveh in spite of all of his effort not to, and he ends up proclaiming the word of the Lord, and when the Lord unleashes mercy on the whole entire city, instead of judgment and condemnation and destruction, he, by his kindness, leads them to repentance, Jonah gets mad. Jonah gets indignant. Jonah's unhappy. Because he was only interested... If I've got to go, then at least I get to watch him burn. Because, see, his mind was not God's mind. And his heart was not God's heart. He was consumed with himself and a concern 
for his own desires and his own safety and the values and the priorities and the things of this world instead of the eternal kingdom of God. And so when God said in verse 2, Jonah, arise, get up, and go to Nineveh, Jonah, the prophet of God, this is as far as his obedience goes. He got up <laughs> and then ran the other way. He fled. And he didn't just flee from Nineveh. He fled, verse 3 says, to Tarshish. And most importantly, away from the presence of the Lord. You remember um, the story of Jacob that we looked at a few week ago, weeks ago in the, in the book of Genesis? And you remember that that place in Genesis 32 where Jacob wrestled with God, that he ended up calling that place Peniel, because he says, here I have seen God face to face. Remember that? The Hebrew word El means God. The Hebrew word for face is Panim. Put it together, you get Peniel, literally the face of God, the, the immediate, intimate, face-to-face -face presence of God. Now listen here, in Jonah chapter 1 and verse 3, after God tells Jonah to get up and go to Nineveh, Jonah instead got up and fled to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. And the word presence there in Hebrew is that same word, panim. Jonah didn't just run away from Nineveh. Jonah fled from the very face of God. From the very presence of the Almighty now, we don't know exactly how for sure God proclaimed this message to Jonah, whether it was audibly or in a dream or in some other way. But Jonah understood perfectly and loud and clear that the God of heaven was telling him to go to Nineveh, and he said no and turned his face from God and ran the other way. And we don't know where exactly Tarshish was, in relation to where Jonah was in Gathhefer in Israel, or in relation to Nineveh, which was far off to the east in Assyria, what we know is that Tarshish was somewhere in the exact opposite direction because Jonah needed to get a boat from the port city of Joppa in order to sail there. And we know historically that the boats that sailed to Tarshish were big boats, big ships built for long, heavy voyages across the sea. And so Tarshish was traveling to Tarshish, was commonly referred to as traveling to the ends of the earth. How far away can I get, Jonah said. How far from God can I run, Jonah said. That's where he wanted to go. See, away from all of the dangers in Nineveh, he didn't like those people. He didn't want anything to do with those people. And he was terrified to say anything to those people because of what he was afraid they would do to him. He wanted to get away from the cruelty and the wickedness and the godlessness. He wanted to get away from all of the disgusting spiritual filth and darkness of Nineveh and the Assyrians. He wanted to get away from all of the wretched pollution of that godless, pagan, unbelieving place as far from its depraved values as he could get, and consequently, as far from the face and the presence of God who had called him to go there as he could get. The Irish Old Testament scholar T. Desmond Alexander sums it up like this. He says, By fleeing from the Lord's presence, Jonah announces emphatically his unwillingness to serve God. He's, he's called the servant of God in 2 Kings 14. And he's saying, I'm not doing it. His action is nothing less than open rebellion against God's sovereignty. And this is, this, every time we sin, this is what we're doing, see? Every time we say, not thy will but mine, this is what we're doing, see? This is the tendency of all human flesh. It's as old as the garden, isn't it? Adam hid himself from the face of God after eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Cain fled from 
the presence from the face of the Lord after murdering his brother Abel in a, in a, in a fit of jealous rage. And here Jonah's just doing the same thing. God didn't send Jonah away from danger. God didn't send Jonah away from the presence of evil. God wanted to send him into it, into the darkness to be the light. And Jonah ran away because Jonah was afraid of the consequences of trusting God. Just like Adam. Just like Cain. Just just like all of us. But our God who reveals himself here reveals that while he's just and holy and righteous, he's not vindictive. He's not vindictive. He's driven by his own gracious and merciful nature and gracious not only to the Assyrians who were living in Nineveh, also gracious to his own unfaithful, defiant prophet Jonah. When image-bearing human beings turn away from their God, praise God, he doesn't turn away from them. Jonah goes fleeing off to the east and God chases him down. God doesn't leave him. And as we're going to see in the coming weeks as we unpack this book, God's pursuit of Jonah isn't a pursuit to punish the prophet. In fact, God is pulling out all the stops to protect him. Because if you flee from God, you're fleeing from life itself. If you chase after the way that seems right unto you, you're you're chasing after that way that leads to destruction. And God wouldn't have it for his prophet. God chased after him to pursue him in order to protect him and to purify him and to refine him. In spite of Jonah's flagrant, right, rebellion against God, God doesn't abandon Jonah. And God doesn't condemn Jonah. God sustains Jonah. Even in spite of his fear. Even in spite of his defiance. And that's, that's just such a wonderful portent of the gospel, isn't it? For all sinners who have walked that same path for so long, all we like sheep have gone astray after our own way, each one of us. The one true God is not going to allow evil and rebellion to have the last word. He will and he does pour out judgment on unrepentant sinners. But the thing that keeps him from doing that, from already having done that in full and final measure, is his own gracious, loving nature because he's patient. Not wishing that we should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And it's that divine patience in anticipation of the coming Messiah and the redeeming gospel grace that he brings that's what's on display in the book of Jonah patience and grace for the godless Assyrians of Nineveh patience and grace for the fearful defiant prophet Jonah I mean Jonah puts a lot of effort doesn't he into getting away from God into fleeing from the presence of God all throughout the book And all throughout the book, God's not going to let him go. He pursues Jonah with relentless divine purpose and grace in the shape of a big storm. It's his grace in the first chapter. In the form of a big fish that swallows Jonah whole. That's God's grace so that he's not lost at sea, so that he doesn't die in chapter 2. And then God pursues Jonah in chapter 3 by His Word, calling Jonah again to preach to the people of Nineveh to repent. And then God appoints in chapter 4 a plant and a worm and a scorching east wind to protect Jonah, to provide for Jonah. Not to punish him, but to bring him to his senses. Jonah, trust me. Jonah, follow me. Jonah... Don't don't care, as Jesus says in Matthew 6, about the things of this world. Just be concerned with my purposes in you and through you. And I will take care of you. Because again, if you flee from God, you're fleeing from life. And Jonah was chasing after that way that seemed right. It seemed safest. But in the end, God knew it would lead him towards destruction. And so all along the way, God is sovereignly ordaining all kinds of things to goad Jonah to repent, to return, 
to trust the Lord and to cultivate in Jonah this willingness to serve God no matter what the cost. Now, by the end of the book, there's not a whole lot of evidence that Jonah softened his heart and submitted himself to the Lord and to the will of God and to the ways of God. And all that means is this, Jonah is not a heroic example for us to follow. Jonah's Jonah's the thing that points us to Christ. Jonah's an example of of how we all are in our sin. How we're all prone to wander, follow after our own ambitions and desires and priorities, rather than recognizing and resting in the fact that our satisfaction and our our, in our lives and our, our safety, our security in our lives doesn't, doesn't depend on all at all on, on anything in us or anything in this world, right? We think it does. We think we need these things in this world. We need houses. We need savings. We need money. We need in order to be safe. And God says, look, if you have me, you're safe. Let me worry about the rest. If you have me, you've got it all. It doesn't depend on us and it doesn't depend on anything in this world. It depends only on the abiding presence. Allah Panim, the face of God with us. No matter where we are and what we're doing, sustaining us, sanctifying us, providing for us, purifying us, glorifying Himself through us in His gracious purposes to bring redemption to this world. Light into the darkness. Through us who He's pulled out of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his son. So see, it's it's in contrast to Jonah's attitude. It's in contrast to Jonah's persistent posture towards God that the true meaning of life is found and, and it's expressed in David's words in Psalm 16. True satisfaction and joy don't depend on earthly comfort, convenience, safety, simply depends on God being with us no matter where we are and what we're facing. David says, I have set the Lord always before me. That's where I'm going. That's where I'm, as long as I'm with him, I have it all, right? Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Oh, for that kind of confidence to stop looking around to everything in the world and feeling shaken, but simply to go, because God's with me, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices, David said. My flesh dwells secure because God's with me. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. I'm not going to find it myself. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. It doesn't depend on finding them in this world anywhere. It doesn't depend on finding wherever the grass is greenest in this place to find fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. You can be in the darkest place on earth and if God is with you, you will have fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. If we have Him, we have everything. And that's when we can say also with Asaph in Psalm 73, there's nothing on this earth I desire besides you. I don't need anything more than I need you. And if I've got you, I've got everything even if I don't have anything else. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. God is my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. And you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near my God. That's where I want to be. I have made the Lord God my refuge, not the things of this world, that I may tell of all your works. And so see, it isn't the absence of earthly trouble or danger or distress. It's the presence of God as our refuge. It's not fleeing from danger. It's abiding in Him as our shelter and our fortress and our strength. That's what secures our soul's satisfaction and peace and joy. 
And that's what Jonah is all about pointing us to. So let's pray this morning as we come to worship our God again for the grace to trust Him, to rest in Him, to willingly serve Him and seek His kingdom and righteousness no matter what the cost, knowing that as long as we have Him, we have everything. Pray with me. Our God and our Father, as we go from here and as we, in the coming weeks, as we read and study the chapters and the verses of this book of prophecy that you have breathed out for our prophets, we ask, Father, that you would use these truths to satisfy us with your presence and to content us with your will and to give us courage, Father, to follow wherever you lead and to serve you whatever the cost. Father, our lives are not our own. They are hid with Christ in you. And it is him who lives in us. And so, Father, we pray. Make us to follow in the way of our Master. Make us to be consumed with your glory and the grace and the mercy of your kingdom that shines like light into the darkness of this world. Father, we want to honor you and glorify you and we trust you and we give you praise because you are our refuge, our high tower, our mighty fortress. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Let's stand. And let's turn to page 16, and in response, let's sing on this Reformation Day Luther's famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God.